0: Is it working? Okay. Everybody, I'm sorry to interrupt your conversation, um, but we do want to get started, uh, and uh, and I want to thank all of you for coming. Let me just take just a few minutes to explain what what this is. Uh, uh, CSIS was uh, had had approached the Star Foundation to ask for would they help us. Uh, take on a major effort to look at how do we restore America's inspirational powers. And we call it our Smart Power Program, and it's going on through this year. And it's just absolutely terrific. This is Joe Nye and and, uh, Rich Armitage are the co-chairs, and it's a terrific, terrific group. Well, in the process of this, we were then approached by uh, a number of wonderful people who said they wanted to expand this into a wider discussion with Americans. And uh, people who are interested in and concerned about, uh, you know, the state of our, our national kind of confidence and direction, and, you know, our vocabulary, our, you know, how we're talking to America and the world, and suggested that we have a public series associated with this question of smart power. I especially want to thank um, thank the UN Foundation, the CGLA infrastructure, and that's specifically Norm Anderson for his help, and then the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, who wanted to make this possible, this wider dialogue with uh, with Americans, and uh, so I'm very grateful and want to say thank you to them. Uh, my deep thanks to David Brooks and David Ignatius, and I only say that in alphabetical order. These are two people at the very, very top. I'm so grateful that they're not running think tanks because I couldn't stand the competition They (laughs) were, And they are just the two, uh, I've I've been excited all week to to do this, two leading intellects, I think, thinking a larger uh, image for America. And you are all fortunate to read them weekly. And I have the good fortune occasionally to have a chance to meet with them and talk with them. And it's always rich. So when we started this series, and really we're starting it today. It was how do we begin this dialogue uh, with some of the most thoughtful people—people people that have the capacity to stand back and yet be engaged. You know, and that's a rare quality with intellects. And these two men have demonstrated that. So let me just say thank you both for for joining us today. There is, um, you know, there is no pre-planned structure to this, other than we asked both of them to begin with, uh, with some framing remarks, and then we're going to enter it into really a dialogue. I've got a couple of questions I want to pose, but all of you have, uh, have the central role today, which is your questions to these thinkers will help all of us develop a richer understanding. So I really am counting on you. To stand up when we turn to the wider discussion with, with the audience, please. We are, we really depend on you, your thoughts, your questions, your insights to help make this make this strong. In talking in an earlier conversation with David Brooks, uh, and he was asking, "What the heck is this smart power thing about?" Uh, I said, I, "It's really about, you know, what is the broader narrative that binds America together, looking forward." You know, we, we've become, in some ways, quite a tortured and torn country. We, uh, the Cold War, gave us through external forces, uh, kind of a consensus that carried us for quite a ways, and we are struggling now. What is that? What could it be? And uh, I don't know if that's what he's going to talk about. But I'm certainly, if he doesn't choose to address that with his prepared remarks, I'm going to ask him pretty early on about that. So. David, why don't we start with you, if we might, open this conversation.
1: I'm tempted to throw out my prepared remarks and go straight to that, Uh, and I had a good seven or eight seconds to think of that, but I'll I'll weave that in Uh, America's role in uh, history, America's narrative. Uh, First, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I wish I was a think tank head. I used to work in a building with another major think tank, not this one, and what thrilled me about that building is I would ride the elevators up and down, and none of the think tankers were ever in the elevators. I think they never had to go to work. Uh, and so... Um, you sound like my wife. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and being a president, actually, Bill Frist used to say the Senate, it's like running a cemetery. There are a lot of people under you, but nobody's listening. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure being a think tank head has, has some of those qualities. Um, uh, uh, first, uh, it's sort of a fraud for me to be here, since uh, I'm not primarily a foreign policy expert. Uh, I have a friend um, named Fareed Zakaria, who I'm sure David knows well. In fact, co-hosts a radio or TV show or something with him. Uh, And it was once said of Fareed, um, he's the only person I know whose face lights up at the phrase diplomatic communique. (laughs) Uh, And I'm I'm not really that. I fall asleep at the phrase bipolarity. Uh, I'm not interested, or at least not a supreme expert in this. Um, but I try to follow it because now it is the key issue, and one spends a lot of time with people who are are experts. And I was recently at the University of Virginia at a conference that they had pulled together with some of the really the biggest academic foreign policy experts. And what struck me about those uh, thinkers as they tried to discuss America's role in the world and a better foreign policy was how they couldn't even agree on the central problems. Some people thought terror was the central problem. Some people thought Terror was a small part of a larger problem. Some people thought China threatening was a large problem. Some people thought American unipolarity was a central problem. Some people thought we were leaving a nation-state world. Some people thought we were not. At least in the Cold War, we all thought about how to, how to address the problem, but we essentially knew what the central problem was. And so to me, it is perplexing to try to think about that in, in uh, in the, where we are today. And out of that conference, there were sort of two radically different visions, which I do think are out there in the ether. And one was by Princeton's John Eikenberry, who said, the problem we face is no, there is no one central problem. We have a milieu of problems. And so we have to create a, an architecture that can help us deal with all these flexible problems, ranging from nonproliferation proliferation to, to global terror to global warming. And so he really thought we were at a Dean Acheson moment, uh, an end of World War II moment, where you create all these new institutions, Council of Democracies, something in Asia to constrain China. And so that was his emphasis, a a sort of a really global government with a social welfare agency to help failed nation states. My friend Bob Kagan had a totally opposite view, which was that we are still living in the world of nations and nationalism, and that you may want to create some sort of global arrangement, which America would be at the center at, But Americans are just too different from Chinese, and the French, and the Russians. And that, in Kagan's view, we're still in the world of national rivalries, with America predominant. And that America is going to have to, A, counter the threat of a rising authoritarian movement, people who are authoritarians and actually believe in being authoritarian, and also all these regional fights. And so you got out of that conference radically different uh, views of where we should go. The only thing I'd add is, as I say, I'm not primarily a foreign policy thinker. I never wanted to be Metternich. I don't really like foreign policy conferences because they're often they're too abstract. Uh, I'm a, i am started out and remain uh, a hack sociologist. Uh, and when I was covering Russia, the thing I the you know, we sent all these foreign policy these economics and foreign policy experts to help Russia transition from the Soviet communism to some sort of free market democracy. I used to think if you went into a hard currency restaurant and said, did anybody leave an uh, economic reform plan in the men's room? At every single table, somebody would be patting. Oh, did I? Uh, <laughs> and and the, the problem was I w- I, you'd go into the apartments of the, of the Russian people. And the apartments would be nice. Neat, well-kept, nice furniture. You'd go out into the vestibule of the apartment and it would smell of urine. Nobody would have mopped it. There'd be no light bulb. And you'd ask people, why don't you get together with three or four of your neighbors and uh, and fix up the vestibule? And they would give you some bogus answer. so-and-so's an alcoholic, so-and-so I never liked. But the real answer was they had no social trust because they didn't know who was a KGB agent. And if you don't have that social trust, then any plan you make is going to have problems, and you're going to have law and order problems. And then in Iraq, our effort to remake a Iraq, I think, was illuminated by the World Values Survey by Engelhardt of Michigan. They asked the questions all around the world. And one of the questions they ask is, uh, would you mind if a foreigner moved next door to you? And in America, 9% of Americans would mind. Uh, globally, about 16% of people around the world would mind if a foreigner moved next door to them. In Iraq, 91% would mind. The most xenophobic community society on Earth, because the most traumatized, and when you're traumatized, you pull inward. The other amazing fact about Iraq in this survey was people were asked, what kind of values do you want in your children? And when you ask that question around the world, most people want their children to be nice and kind. In Iraq, the, the main value people wanted in their children was obedience. Again, a sign of a traumatized society. And so I look at, at, at societies sociologically f- really from the subconscious ground up. And I have to say, in the last few years, my view of the sociology of the world has radically changed. Uh, really, in the 1990s, I think I, with a lot of, a lot of people, thought the world was, a, was a, a, a place of rolling hills, that America was different from Europe, which was different from Africa, which was different from the Arab world, but the differences were sort of one of rolling hills. I think since 9 11 uh, and a lot of things that have happened lead me to believe it's a world of, of jagged chasms between these uh, different societies, that we are incredibly tribal. We create moral communities that separate us from them. We define ourselves by us, by hating them. Uh, And the world is a lot uglier. And I happen to think Samuel Huntington was onto a lot with the clash of civilizations. And remember, he didn't say the clash was inevitable. He said we should separate ourselves from other civilizations because uh, the differences are deep and vast. Where I would differ was I, I think Huntington too quickly came to the conclusion that our civilizations are somehow permanent when I think our civilizations are are constantly changing, our tribes are constantly changing in a form of Schumpeterian creative destruction. That we are tribal, but you've got all these social groups that are constantly changing and mutating the tribes and organizations. But there are these vast differences between peoples and these vast rivalries. So I've become much more pessimistic about what we can achieve around the world. And I'd only say uh, two things. The first is, somehow we need our government to be able to think sociologically better, to not only deal with other nation states, but to deal with non-national entities and non-national movements, which I don't think the government is equipped structurally to do. And the second thing, it's to recognize who we are and who we ineluctably are. And this really goes back to the question. I think America, I'm one of those people who who believes uh, that America is... Identity was really founded with the Puritans, even though most of us came much later. And then when they got here, they saw two things. They saw uh, this incredibly fertile land in the 17th century. They saw flocks of geese that were so large, it took them 45 minutes to take off. And they would actually shoot cannons into the geese to see if they could change the direction of the flocks. Uh, And they saw sea life uh, shells and oysters that were bigger than anything they'd ever seen. Uh, And then they saw the vast forests, And they concluded two things. Uh, One is that God's Eden could be created here. And two, we could get really rich while doing it. And it was this sort of moral materialism that I think is still the essence of America. And it is still the sense that we are the last best hope, that the completion of uh, the plan for humanity still resides here. And that completion is democratic freedom. And I, I, don't, I, I think uh, America is uh, always going to be the champion of democratic freedom. The only thing I'd say in the short term is that uh, that's going to be controversial for the next 10 or 20 years because it's been discredited by Iraq. And again, the answer is to think sociologically. What's the substratum of democratic freedom? It's opportunity and meritocracy in this country. And it seems to me one thing, we're not going to be exporting democracy much in the next 10 years. But one thing we can do well is export meritocracy, human capital. The idea that countries should reward people on the basis of their talent and be structured to do that. And that's a very complicated process involving education, involving moral structure, involving social structure. It's all sub-political. But I do think that's the sort of effort that every country with all the different cultural differences can buy into. And that sense of opportunity, the the, the Sammy Glick sense, uh, is really half of what America's about, and something we can still champion in an untainted way.
0: David, thank you. David Brooks, I, uh, Excuse me, David Ignatius, you. <laughs> 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 my mind me, Thank you, yeah. no, thank you, David, for for coming. And uh, you do uh, focus a great deal on foreign policy, but you are free to frame this widely. I look forward. To it.
2: First. Um, Such is my esteem for our host, uh, John Hamry. I said uh, at an event like this uh, a few weeks ago that if John asked me to jump off a bridge, I'd say, OK, and then say, which bridge? Uh, (laughs) I didn't want you to take me quite so literally. Uh, I mean, this is a very daunting uh, bridge to to jump off of. Uh, David Brooks, who I I love appearing on panels with because he he always is so simulated. even if he makes me feel awfully dumb a lot of the time, um, wrote this morning about taking the long view, the, the Tolstoyan view of the unfolding of history. Um, I was joking with John before he started that maybe I would take the Dostoyevsky view, and I don't know. But I, I do want to um, try to take my own version of, of, of the long view in thinking about uh, John's uh, question and. You know, as I uh, think about the world, even in the really miserable mess that it's in now, I haven't lost the fundamental optimism that I had, um, you know, since I was since I was a boy. That that history is the unfolding of this great story of human eman- emancipation, of liberation of human beings from the constraints of nature, which make them uh, hungry and cold, from the constraints of tyrannical political systems that enslave them, that deny them freedom, that the unfolding of our intellect so that we, we create the beautiful things, uh, works of art and science that, that are dazzling. I mean, that, that sounds corny, but that, that really is the way I think about this historical story that we're, that we're all part of. So in that sense, you know, I, I do think the American story, which is about the unfolding of as David said, of material <clears throat> progress and wealth and, and of human freedom. The American story is is the world's story, that, that our national narrative really does connect with the fundamentals of, of, of where the world is going. Um, and the biggest problem we have now is that although that's true, and I'll come back to, to this subject, um, in, in much of the world uh, there is a sense of disconnect that America is not on the side of these great ideals that people dream of, but is on the side, you know, is, is, is the soldiers you see in the images from Iraq. I mean, Americans are people who wear wraparound sunglasses and body armor and just can blow anything away, and that's, and that's who we are. We're the global tough guys. So different from our self-image, but I, you know, I, I do think that, that, that we've, we've come to, to, be, to be seen that way. Um, you know continuing with this idea of stepping back a little bit I was born in 1950 uh, I'm, I'm a little older than David but I, you know I, I do have to make myself remember sometimes when I'm really being uh, gloomy about the state of things how much the world has changed since I was born and how much of the story of human emancipation of the unfolding of human opportunity has happened in my lifetime you know I mean Soviet communism Brutal, a system built on lies, built in, you know a pyramid of lies, collapsed. Chinese communism, a system that, in terms of the absolute number of, of deaths, uh, you know may surpass even even uh, the Soviet Soviet communism. Um, you know that system has been so transformed. Is this on? Can you hear me any better with this? Yeah. Good. Um, has been so transformed that it, you know that in many ways it's it's, it's unrecognizable. Um, India. You know, when I grew up, the, the when you when you talked about what poverty was, you talked about you talked about India, the starving people in India. And it was a pretty darned accurate image. And today, when we, we talk about India, we talk about a, an economic powerhouse. So I have a friend, an Indian friend in Europe, who says that when he first arrived in Germany, everybody assumed he owned an Indian restaurant, and now everyone assumes he, he's a software engineer. <laughs> uh, he's neither, but he says this is the, the, the you can see in the in the in the transformation of stereotypes. Um, how far, how far we've come. Even the Middle East, I want to say. Even the Middle East is this story of the unfolding of human possibility. Um, you know, these days the news is so grim that it's easy to forget it. But you know, I've been going back and forth to the Middle East since 1980, um, and you know, I, I remember what Cairo was like. I remember the kind of grinding poverty of Egyptians that that I used to see. I remember in Syria, uh, you you, you didn't even dare name uh, the ruling authorities for fear someone was listening. You know, in in Lebanon, Lebanese journalists would refer to certain Arab quarters if they met the Syrians. Uh, You know, that's how how scared they were. You know, back then when when Syrian uh, troops manned checkpoints that I used to have to go through over and over again uh, as a correspondent in Beirut, and you were really frightened. We were really frightening. They would take people out of their cars and shoot them. You know, those checkpoints are gone because the Syrian army was driven from Lebanon by a, a united Lebanese people who said, enough, enough, we've had enough of this. So, you know, even in Iraq, I mean, Iraq is this, a tragedy whose dimensions we haven't begun to see yet. But I, I do want to say, I, you know, I, I first went to Iraq in 1980, uh, they took my typewriter away because it was a murderous weapon that, that, that terrified the authorities, that someone would type and speak and and, and disseminate the truth about that about that regime. Um, you know, with all the nightmares, I do think Iraq is on a road that over time is going to lead toward, you know, the unfolding of human possibility, greater freedom, greater material wealth, a fairer distribution of that wealth. You know, I hope it happens within my Within my lifetime, I, I'm 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 never sure. I, I do think that we have to be honest when we think about the Middle East, which is we're all going to be thinking about uh, through our through our working lives. That you know the thing that the Arabs keep saying, and we sort of don't listen to. We really need to listen to it. I don't know what we're going to do about it, but the Arabs say, you know, colonialism ended in the world, but there was an implantation of colonialism. Israel, a European nation, was implanted in our midst. Um, in, in 1948, and we think this is wrong. We think this, and you know, and it makes us furious because we, you know, we Americans instinctively love Israel and its, its values. But Arabs have not gotten over this, and everything that happens in that part of the world is layered on that sense of victimization that they're still living a colonial <coughs> existence. Certainly, Iraq has been layered over that, you know, we have replaced the Israelis in the demonology of the Arabs. I have here for a long time. You know, as as the new the, the new colonialists, the people who would deny them their identity, their freedom, their ability to live as the, as the, as they want. Um, just a couple further thoughts about about John's big uh, question. I used to be an unabashed fan of the work of a man named Thomas Barnett,
0: mm-hmm.
2: who wrote a book called The Pentagon's New Map, which I which I commend to you because it's a very interesting book and it made the argument. That there were little bits of this, I think, in what in what David was saying that. The problem in the world is the lack of connectedness. You know that, that as the global economy reaches out, you know as the wires of the global economy penetrate to every country, to the to the dark parts of the map, you know penetrates to the Middle East, the parts that are not connected, that we you know we will become one world, and and you know in my in my vision, this this great story will become universal. Um, and I, I still think there is a lot to that, a lot just to, to seeing that the that the issue is connectedness and connecting the disconnected. But something has become clear to me in the last few years. I, I've said it, I think, before at one of John's Sessions, but I want to repeat it for this audience. Something I didn't understand as I traveled around and saw people from Africa, Asia, the Middle East at conferences I would go to, you know, and we talked and we shared the same values and they were sending their kids to Harvard and Princeton, and their kids were going to work for Goldman Sachs, and they were all part of the same great adventure. And here we were all staying at the Four Seasons (laughs) Hotel, and, you know, gosh, I mean, everything must be going right. You know, obviously, uh, what you forget is that as those elites in countries around the world plug into the global grid, become connected to the global grid with their institutions, Uh, especially uh, their economic institutions, they become disconnected from their local grid. And that is one of the fundamental things that has happened um, in this period uh, of of globalization, is the connectedness and corresponding disconnectedness. And I think that's what accounts for some of the terrible problems that we see in the Middle East. The local elites, the people who are the natural (coughs) leaders of those societies as they modernize, you know, the people who, you know, were the traditional, the mukhtars, the leaders of their communities, <coughs> came separated from their communities and joined our communities. I mean, I see that in, 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 in the patterns of my, of my friends, my friends' children, you know, that story evolving over time. And it's very dangerous because it leaves a vacuum that is filled, as, as in Iraq, where the, where the elites disconnected a long time ago because they hated Saddam, anybody who believed did, um, you know, the, the elites became disconnected, and we were left with these pre-modern um, structures, the tribes, um, you know, the mosque, um, you know, even among the mosques, you know, the most uh, traditional, uh, primitive, and intolerant sometimes. So, you know, I, 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 I warn about, you know, the, the, I'm enthusiastic about connectedness, and I'm really scared about disconnectedness, and somehow we have to think more about, about, about the latter. So final uh, thought, which just sums up what what I've been trying to say. Um, You know, as I think about about the future, as I think, in fact, about the 2008 presidential campaign, for example, um, you know, it seems to me that the fundamental uh, issue really is how to turn a page from this period in which the world doesn't believe that we are living by our ideals. I mean, the world is no less committed to this story of the unfolding of freedom, human opportunity, you know, I mean, I any time I go to the Middle East and talk to Arabs, you know, talk talk to sheikhs in the mosque, I hear, you know, profoundly idealistic discussions of human human opportunity. Um, you know, we've, we've got to turn a page so that we are not seen as the enemy of those things, which we think of as our values, but are again seen as, 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 as the friends and supporters so that ordinary people think, America's on our side. America doesn't oppose what we want. Uh, I think that's a very complicated... Set of questions. Leave it for discussion, but I, I think that's the heart of what's necessary.
0: David, thank you. I, now you all know why I'm so happy to think we're a think tank. I mean, what a rich uh, start to this afternoon and uh, fascinating. Let me. Uh, I'm going to start our discussion, and I, I'm really asking all of you to be chiming in here. But let me start the this discussion, and I'd I'd, I'd like to to what I see as a central dilemma for our our political environment these days. Uh, I see a great divide, not a blue-red divide you know, in America, but a different kind of a divide, a divide where the elites in America are hungering for a wise internationalism, and average citizens are looking for protection. You know, Democrats want to be protected from imports. Republicans want to be protected from immigrants. You know, I mean, it's but, I mean, there's a, average citizens look for protection, and, and yet the elites say we are isolating ourselves in a self-destructive way. How do we bridge across this great chasm? And I think that's the challenge for our politicians like, like never before. David, do you want to begin?
1: Okay. I guess I'd begin by uh, stealing an idea that Tony Blair had or one of his speechwriters had. Uh, he, he said that if, if uh, the crucial divide in the future is not between left and right but between open and closed... And that prompted the thought that if we could start politics all over here with a blank slate, what we would have is we would have one party, which would be the closed party, or let's start with the open party, which would believe in open trade, open borders, uh, reasonably open borders, uh, multilateral uh, arrangements in foreign policy, and uh, generally welcoming of globalization. Uh, And it would be socially liberal. Then we'd have another party, which would be suspicious of free trade, socially conservative, suspicious of open globalization, and suspicious of multilateral institutions. Right now, those two parties are split. Both parties have parts, elements of those, the, of those coalitions. But the key point is the desire for security. Uh, and there, and I, I noticed this first in the Social Security reform debate. It did, if, when the subject was private accounts for Social Security and investing in the markets... It didn't matter whether the congressperson was Republican or Democrat. It mattered are they from a growing part of the country or a shrinking part of the country. People from growing parts liked the risk and opportunity. People from shrinking parts didn't like the risk and and the opportunity. They were nervous. They wanted security. And I do believe this desire for order and security, both economic security, national interest security in terms of immigration, Social, and I mean that uh, in the social issues sense, security, family value security, making sure you know your daughter won't have a child outside of wedlock. All these desire for security and authority is powerful in American politics. And especially those of us sort of in the baby boomer uh, milieu, though I'm slightly younger, I'm happy to say, uh, were, uh, have a problem talking about order and authority. But the American people actually long for that kind of order and authority. If you go back to child psychology, the most important thing about childhood is, does a child feel securely attached by age two or three? A securely attached child was much more likely to take risks later in life. And that, that formula that security leads to taking risks is sort of uh, the, the secret formula that you've got to give people security before they'll be entrepreneurial. Uh, and for a whole bunch of globalization-related reasons, we're doing a poor job of that. And a lot of us, as David suggests, feel so happy with the opportunities, we're not even anxious about the security, and we look down on people who think, I need a little more order and authority in my life.
0: Uh, let, let, me, let, me, David, let me just come back and, and impress you. David, what, when we have back-to-back the trauma of 9-11 and then the, what looks like the failure in Iraq, What is that going to do to that mix of opportunity versus security? How will this play out?
1: Well, it only heightens it. I mean, look what's happened in the last, since 9 11. Every authority structure in America has suffered some sort of cataclysmic loss of confidence, whether it's the CIA, whether it's the presidency, whether it's the Catholic Church, uh, even the media, we've had our scandals. Uh, And if you look, and to me, the big number in American life is do you trust government to do the right thing most of the time? And that has fallen from, uh, say, the mid-60s from about 70% to like 25% now. And that is why the right-track-wrong numbers are at historic lows. Mm. It all traces back to this crisis of authority. Uh, And to me, a a party that can promise some authority, some structure in life, uh, is going to be a party that does well. And each party has their own formula for it. The Democrats emphasize economic security. The Republicans talk about military security. But both, for both, the key issue is no longer the freedom that we thought it was in the 90s and the openness and choice. It's order, authority, security. Uh, it would be a good time for uh, Benito Mussolini to make a comeback. No. <laughs> <laughs> At last we know you're do your <laughs> Yeah, right. Is. Pat Buchanan. <laughs> <David. Wow.
0: laughs> this is off the record. Boys. <laughs> um,
2: I, wa- I want to... Address both of the, of the of the points that just that just uh, came up. First, on this question of uh, counter internationalist, counter openness um, tendencies in in America, they're real. Uh, you know, there is a populist anger that's afoot. Uh, attempts to deny it or suppress it, I think, are are a mistake. Um, and you know, increasingly, I've come to think that what's needed is a kind of uh, you know give the, borrowing the phrase, a kind of New Deal, where, you know, workers who feel that their jobs are threatened by foreign competition, and many workers' jobs are threatened by foreign competition. You know, we denied it for so long, but it's true. That's the nature of a global economy. Um, that, that, those, that those workers will feel that there is a new commitment to fairness, um, you know, among America's uh, leaders. That you know that they can't be protected. I think protection is a disaster that ends up hurting everybody. But that that that, that the people will be concerned about what happens to them. I think this was Bill Clinton's genius. You know, in, in the in the uh, in the in the '96 campaign. You know, his rhetoric about building a bridge to the future. Um, I think resonated with people because it was really all about this. You feel under threat. You know that this, there's this competitive world out there and that your job is at risk. And Clinton talked again and again about ways to help you get the skills, the opportunities, so you could make it, you could cope in this in this more competitive world. So I think that some, you know, that, that, that people are going to get angrier and angrier at the system unless they feel that there's a commitment to fairness uh, at, at the top. Just briefly about about life after after 11 Thinking today about about what we might talk about. You know, I, 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 I got thinking about. The assumption I studied economics, um, where David is a is a hack, uh, in his terms, a sociologist. I'm a hack economist, and you know people who studied general equilibrium, neoclassical economics. You know, and all of us have a version of that in our heads. Just assume reflexively that systems that are not off balance tend to move back toward equilibrium. You know, like a spinning uh, gyroscope. Um, they, 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 we forget that a spinning gyroscope has to sp- be spinning very fast, or in fact, it won't come back to, 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 the, to the center point. But you know what we've seen is what e- economics, as it becomes more sophisticated, understands, which is that you know, we really are in disequilibrium states. That, that, that you know that something that's knocked off course doesn't come back. It can go. The, the perturbation can, can become much larger. You know, it's a sort of undamped oscillation, and that's what I think we've seen. Um, since 9/11, everything we've tried to do to cope with it has made that you know off-balance uh, sense even worse. We've become more discombobulated. We've become more disoriented, more fearful. You know, in the, and in that fearful state, making worse decisions, and it just it compounds, and we don't come back to the center point. Um, and you know, it, it, in a sense, you could argue that's that's inevitable. Again, that's why the 2008 election and the idea of coming back towards something that's you know that's that's different and, and can can be stable over time. Uh, it really matters. I,
0: I don't I don't want to say this is a universal truth, but I've noticed in uh, almost all democracies seem to have a, a, a common feature that advanced democracies when they confront globalization tend to produce more parochial politicians. <laughs> and you know what do you do? When the sentiment is to appeal to a base that is frightened, but you have a political system that forces you to really resonate to near-term anxiety. <laughs>
2: well, you know, I, I mean, I, I would say, you know, I, I said some very optimistic things about you know, the unfolding of hu- human freedom, and I am very pessimistic now because I I don't see our system responding to these crises. I don't see, you know, the the leadership emerging uh, in either party that really is up is up to the challenge. Um, You know, I see people. I I see new media adding to the fragmentation. um, You know, the the disunity of the country. Uh, You know, I, I see a center that you know everybody sort of likes the idea of the center in principle, and and the center obviously is the ground on which you solve problems. But that ground, in practical terms, seems to me to get smaller and smaller, even as we know how important it is. So, so John, I, I think that's, you know, there's a new book uh, by Colin Murphy out called "Are We Rome?" You know, which which paints the bleakest possible, um, you know, question for us to ponder: Are we in a state of cyclical decline like Rome? And I, you know, I think the answer to that is not, you know fundamentally is about, is about the quality of leadership and the ability to solve problems. We don't now have strong leadership. We are not now able to solve problems. And unless
1: A changes, you won't change B. You've taken us from Pangloss to Spengler in 10 minutes. <laughs> 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 uh, I, uh, I guess on that subject, on the, on the sort of the responsibility uh, of politicians to deal with the, the anxieties of globalization... Well, we see it every day. If, if you want to ask why, why is wage inequality growing, you'd have to point to several reasonably abstract processes. One, the, the rise of uh, the education premium, that education is rewarded with money. Second, changes in household structure. Uh, third, the fact that companies can now pay people individually. Less as part of groups, but they have the information to pay them as individuals. And people who are fungible do not see their salaries increase, whereas people who are unique do see spectacular increases. And third or fourth or fifth, and I think reasonably one of the smaller parts of widening inequality and job loss, is globalization, is Chinese competition. I think it's quite, I think most economists would say it's a reasonably small part of job loss. Uh, Mostly it's changes in technology. Nonetheless, if you're a politician out on the campaign trail, it's much easier to say the Chinese are taking your jobs. And so that is what you hear again and again and again. Uh, nonetheless, does, do the American people necessarily buy that? They always seem on the verge of buying it, and they never actually do. The candidates who are suspicious of globalization in a patriotic way never actually win. It's always tomorrow's thing, the rising tide of, of protectionism or nativism or isolationism. It's always the rising thing. It never gets here. And so I do think that the American people have a reasonably sophisticated view of, global, of, of politics. And the reason we have the, the hysterical polarized structure to me has more to do with things in Washington, mm-hmm. having to do with the primary process, having to do with fun, campaign finance, uh, having to do with the team spirit on Capitol Hill, which enforces a sort of uh, partisan rigor, uh, and less so out in the country. So I actually think the uh, as far as the the country rejecting some sort of center, I'm one of those people who think the country hasn't done that at all.
0: Uh, can we follow up on this? Because I think this is an interesting phenomenon. uh, You know, Washington has created its own microclimate of self-induced pressure. you, You know, there are boiler rooms around the town that are dialing up reliable friends, frightening them and saying, doesn't that really worry you? Here, I can connect you with your congressman. And then, boom, and all of a sudden, they're talking to their congressman. I mean, it's a microclimate of pressure. But it seems to be living that way. I mean, do you have a a solution? Is there something we could do about that? Uh, How do we get the wisdom of the countryside into Washington rather than just Washington being a self-licking ice cream cone?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Let me roll that image over in my head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> certain canine images are coming to mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't have to I, <laughs> uh, I, I guess uh, I wouldn't want to overvalue the, uh, uh, <laughs> the wisdom of the American people. They're uh, sensible but rarely wise. Uh, uh, I guess I would say uh, these things go in cycles. And I think we've had this conversation before. When I go to lunch with a, a senator in particular, uh, I always come away from that lunch thinking reasonable in private. That in private, they all have subtle views. They know how stupid a lot of their own views. They have secret contempt for most of their primary voters. Uh, they realize people on the other side make some good points. And then you turn on C-SPAN in the afternoon, and they're raving lunatics. <laughs> and and they're, they're all aware of it internally. But there is a script... Uh, of team spirit and I think it just is mentality that you want to be a team player and you want to say the same things. The senators go to the Senate policy lunches on Tuesday afternoons and they get the message of the week and they repeat it because it's a team sport and yet these cycles come and go Uh, and I have a feeling that we're end of one end of one of these cycles And, and if you look at the presidential candidates on the Democratic side, the two front runners, I think Obama has basically built his campaign on being non-vicious. Clinton is personally sort of secretive and tough, but I think on policy grounds, is not particularly polarizing. And then on the, the Republican side, I think neither Giuliani uh, nor Thompson uh, or the former governor of Massachusetts are particularly polarizing figures. So I do think it, this is a case where character and leadership do matter mm-hmm. and that we're about to see the end of that sort of cycle. What we won't see the end of, and and I do want to bring this up, is when we think of the golden age of American foreign policy, and I say this as a a Jew from the Lower East Side, we had a Protestant establishment that was insulated from a lot of populist pressures. Mm -hmm. And that Protestant establishment had a lot of bad qualities. Keeping people like me out of the Ivy League was one of them. But one of the good qualities is they did have a, a belief in public service, and they did have an insulation from from political pressure, that sometimes had some good effects, mm-hmm. and that is never coming back. And so, a lot of the longing for the wise men—that's uh, never coming back. But it, it did have some good qualities.
0: Let, let me uh, uh, share with you a little uh, story, uh, which I think, which is to try to motivate a larger uh, a larger discussion. Uh, Russell Long, Senator Russell Long, um, told this story about himself. He, he, uh, His scheduling secretary had gotten confused one day and scheduled delegations from two different cities in Louisiana to come and meet with him at the same time to petition him to support them for the same thing. It was kind of an unfortunate you know, conflict of scheduling. And Russell Long caught by the embarrassment with the two two city fathers sitting there, he said, well, look, if you all want me to agree with you, you're going to have to come in here separately. (laughs) (laughs) And I use that to to raise a point. We sometimes seem to want to have a discussion with the American public pretending that nobody overseas hears it. I remember when I was in Baghdad the first time talking to some... uh, some uh, Iraqis, and, and I asked them, I said, how do you get your news? And they said, well, we listen to television. We don't trust the print. All that. I said, well, what do you watch? He said, well, we watch Al Jazeera, but we really watch Fox TV because that's what you guys really think. Okay. That was what they said. Now, it is when, when you have a domestic voice speaking to a domestic audience but is listened to internationally, it raises a really complex question. I mean, if you will, we can't, can't have the two city fathers come in separately. You know, It's all one media. And yet, so we've got this distortion of foreign policy by the competition for domestic politics. And I'd like to get your reaction to that. What do we do about that? Because the demands just don't, don't permit the kind of subtlety that seemed to characterize foreign policy in the past. David, you started.
2: Well, you know, we're... Living through right now, um, you know, a, a, a test of, of whether the country can reach responsible decisions about what to do uh, in Iraq. Um, you know, when there are enormous domestic political pressures on people to opt for expedient um, solutions in quotation marks that, if we're not careful, could make a terrible situation even worse. And you know, we're going to. See some profiles in courage, or uh, more likely, I fear some some uh, you know uh, further evidence that um, you know people, um, our legislators really will you know drop the reasonable and private uh, stance that David was talking about to be uh, you know to do the wrong thing in my judgment um, in, in their votes. I mean, I, I <coughs> we'll, we'll have to see. You know, David. Was right to say, gee, you know, look at look at uh, Obama and Hillary. You know, they're pretty moderate people and they're leading. But you know, look at Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, and you know, look at the kinds of things that they're saying and look at the kind of debate that we're having. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the White House is at this point so disoriented about Iraq, I think that they are, you know, for the first time, you know, I don't, would, would not say this necessarily about the president, but certainly people around him you know reaching out almost you know flailing looking for people who could help them chart the new course that they know will be coming uh, after the September report by general Petraeus, uh, not to mention John Hamry. <laughs> and um, uh, so you know I, I but I, I think we're you know we we it happens that we're we are John and period that really brings this issue right to the center and I from what I see right now um, and we, we're in a particular bad situation we have a president who has effectively lost his ability to speak to the country and that means that you know the ability to argue for the set of policies that are you know, associated with, with the president with this administration is, is so d- diminished and degraded that it, it, I think that's part of why this um debate is, is as as
1: it is. Let me just say first, uh, for your friends who are watching Fox, it should be pointed out that more Americans own ferrets than watch Fox News. Uh, and that, that's a fact that probably doesn't come up very often. <laughs> but it, it is the truth. Uh, I get it from, um, I forgot, there's a political scientist at Stanford who told me that. Uh, uh, it is also a fact that we have a democracy in this country and that we have rival points of view. Uh, and at least if they watch Fox, they'll be scared. If they listen to NPR, God knows what they'll think of us. So, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so, but, but as for th- this tricky issue of, of the skewing of, of domestic pressure, well, the, the exit strategy from Iraq is actually a good example. Uh, I'm sure privately Obama, Clinton, Giuliani, McCain, Romney, have pretty tortured views about what to do. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, most of us do, because no one really knows what will happen. And, and uh, you know, I want, I, my gut tells me it'll be a complete disaster if we withdraw quickly, but I really don't know. And I read the paper. The Post had a good article today. No one really has a clue what will happen. Nonetheless, when you look at what happened in the Senate last week, what you had was uh, a three, well, really a four-part split. You had the, some, about 20 Republicans who think that... Uh, We should just stick it out. The surge is basically going to produce some results. Twenty Democrats who think we should just get out as quickly as possible. And then a group there in the middle of 60 who are basically where the Iraq study group is. And now why can't 60 be a majority and actually impose their will? Well, the short answer is they're divided. Half of them are Republican and half are Democratic. Mm -hmm. And it's more convenient for both party leaders, in particular Harry Reid, to force Republicans to vote with the president all the time. It's just politically a lot better to have the issue. And so that's why the center has not uh, imposed its will, even though it's a large majority. And the second, by the way, and I have trouble rooting it for it to impose its will, because I happen to think the Iraq Steady Group report imagines an overly centralized Iraq and wouldn't work anyway. Uh, And so the the idea that there is some responsible, obvious solution that the center and the establishment uh, could impose if only politics were out of its way I'm not sure that's true. Uh, So, uh, you know, I I think this week is a good illustration of that. But it is certainly true that the people running, and I can't say this publicly, but I believe it privately, uh, the people running Iraq policy in the Senate, not not the Carl Evans and Jack Reeds who really know what they're talking about. The party leaders have no clue what they're talking about. I believe that. I believe that they could not pass a cultural literacy test on Iraq and that they, they know what's in the best interest of their party. And that is a little worrisome. But, again, that's a matter of leadership and character.
0: Okay. Let me open up this wider, this discussion to all of you. Please, yes. Why don't you begin? We'll, we'll bring a microphone over to you.
2: Yeah, My question relates to two comments that David Brooks made at the beginning of his remarks. One was that um, social trust, uh, a lack of social trust, um, degrades, you know, authority. Without social trust, you have no authority and rule of law. And then later on, that um, in the Americans crave security and rule of law and so forth. And many commentators have noticed that the political polarization that we see here could reflect a declining of social capital or social trust. And so I'd like your comments, your comments on whether or not you see social trust declining in the U.S. and how that affects politics, and if so, why and what we might do about that.
1: Well, Robert Putnam at Harvard, the Harvard sociologist, has built his career on this point. And I think here again, and this goes back to something David was talking about, you have to differentiate uh, different levels of society. We're splitting, obviously, economically. We're splitting, uh, we're dividing, or segmenting, is a better word, uh, in behavior. In 1964, a rich family and a poor family had basically the same behaviors, the same divorce rates, all that kind of stuff. That's no longer true. Now, a a family with a high school education has twice the divorce rate as a family with a college education. They have twice the smoking rate. Uh, They're much, much much less likely to volunteer and uh, contribute to community activities. And the most scary thing is, if you ask people lower down the income scale, do you trust institutions, do you trust your neighbors? Much, much lower levels of social trust. So we're segmenting not only in income levels and behavior, but also in the level of values. And so there are these rich communities forming around the Internet and, fr- and, uh, and MySpace and all that uh, at the upper educated levels. But at the lower levels, I think there is more atomization. And there's especially much less communication between those with college degrees and those without. Thirty or forty years ago, there were things like the Elks Clubs and the Lions Clubs, which really were tremendously cross-class organizations. Those organizations no longer exist. Nobody goes to an Elks Club meeting anymore people belong to the Sierra Club, or the NRA, basically with people very much like themselves. And so again, that's one of the invisible bridges of society that has been eroded. And that may be just a function of people have more choices now, they're less tied to geography, and therefore they're more likely to cluster. But it does have spin-off effects of who you trust, who you're going to borrow money from, who you're going to lend money to, who you're going to marry, and it does lead to increasing segmentation and a decline of integration. Um, one of the, I wrote a column last couple of weeks ago about integration. One of the things I learned was that after all the civil rights movement uh, somewhere between four and eight percent of Americans live in truly integrated neighborhoods. The rest live in pretty segregated neighborhoods, and that that, um, that may be a reality we have to live with, but it 's not a high level of social integration and trust
2: like uh David, I'm a, I'm a fan of Robert Putnam. Uh, not only are we bowling alone, which is the, is the title of his famous book about this, um, you know, we're not reading newspapers either. Um, you know, I, I like to think of newspapers as kind of evidence of this bonded. Um, you know, newspapers are trusted sources of information. They used, to, they used to help define what it was to live in a community. Um, you know, they built these wonderful businesses that David and I still cling to. Um, and you know, one of the things in our business that we're that we're finding is that you know, as I mean, Washington's a good example. This this area is growing like a it's just t- taking off like a rocket. Um, and yet, our circulation in this in this incredibly prosperous, expanding metropolitan region, our penetration of of, 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 of the population keeps going down and down. And we're one of the, still one of the success stories in the business. Mm-hmm. And there's something happening, you know, when it comes to information, as, as with everything else, that, that the sort of center, the kind of things we share in common, the trusted sources of information, the community institutions. I mean, I don't mean to say the Washington Post or the Elks Club, but there is something that, you know, that, 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 that links the two. They're part of an era that's, that's, that's changing, it's more fragmented you know, I do hope, I, I, you know, one thing we know about life is that it swings back and forth, and um, you know, people I know who are really smart about the internet say that, you know, the really shrill, crazy blogosphere with everybody screaming at everybody else that you know if you go on the internet is, is beginning to run out of steam. And that that in that area, you know, if you're thinking like, what are the, you know, the business models of the future, how are we going to think about where, where our business of communications is going. Don't bet on a, on a, on a blog-dominated world, because that's not like, you know, it's going to evolve into something a little, bit, a little bit different, in part because, you know, so many people write blogs that nobody looks at. There are a few, you know, so the Googles have blogged them, um, you know, the you know, Huffington Post and a few other examples, but not that many, actually. And, and, and many of the other super shrill ones are going to give way. So I guess that would be my, you know, my, my sense is that, you know, American... Culture does swing back and forth. The fragmentation we see, you know, is severe. But for that very reason, that you know, you, you think that, that there might be corrective things, uh, you hope that there are corrective things.
0: Ned. Here, Liz, we've got a mic coming up to you right here.
3: way around. And I think that in the United States they feel I don't think we have, but I was wondering if you could comment on that.
2: I'll, I'll start just very quickly, uh, Ned. A few people know the Middle East as well as, uh, as, as Ned Walker just spoke. I mean, I, I, I do think that um, you know, we are seen to have lost our way. You know, the, the our way has to be put in quotation marks. You know, in, in Beirut, you know, a young Lebanese w- would think of the American way in terms of the American University of Beirut, a great institution. You know, one of the, the greatest things our country has ever done is this. But, you know, this was, a, this was an institution founded by Protestant missionaries, founded by, you know, 19th century versions of this class that David was talking about. That had an idea of who we were that was based around themselves and their values. They were they were strong, passionate people. They took that idea of what America is out in the world. Uh, you know, they built these institutions and the, that the world loved, embraced. You know, and you know we're a much more complex society as that elite broke down and then really it was destroyed. Finally, I think by the Vietnam War. Until then, it, it, it maintained its integrity. You know, post-Vietnam America, it's harder to speak about who we are, what our values are just more complicated so that you know if, if people around the world think we've lost our way there's a way in which in which that's that's true that's you know what will be exciting in our politics um, I do keep reverting <laughs> optimist to pessimist what will be exciting is if we leaders emerge who have the ability to define who we are as a people what our values are in a powerful way that will that will stick and and really and, and project our
1: well, I guess one of my lines is that we tried to democratize the Middle East and end up Middle Easternizing our democracy, <laughs> uh, by which I mean selecting, we all now select the truth we prefer and imagine conspiracies on the other side and uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I guess I would say, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the conversation would be different if we'd won the war. I mean, talk about <laughs> smart power, you know, just win the war. And then I think <laughs> the whole, a lot of the world would be... Uh, all of these discussions about Americans' role in the world would be a lot different. Maybe we wouldn't be having the discussion. And my basic view, and I, I never get my friends in the Middle East to accept this view, but I'm firmly convinced that it's true, was that the war in Iraq was one of the most noble-intentioned exercises in American history. I do think we had no, we had some national interest, obviously, in preventing uh, terror. But we, and I think the president genuinely did think he was going to create freedom and democracy and believes that to this day. It would have been nice if it had been executed well. But I, I do think that war was not a betrayal of our ideals, it was a betrayal of our reputation for pragmatism. Uh, but I, I, uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, we, we tried to create democracy in Palestine again, maybe at the wrong time. But it was not a betrayal of ideals. It was a hasty and foolish and probably naive uh, hurrying up of ideals. Uh, and so I still would defend the country on that grounds. And I think that idealism, and remember, 70, 80% of the American people supported the war at some point, is still there, is always going to be there, it's been there from the beginning. And it's always been a vaguely upsetting country to the world, as my friend Robert Kagan calls it, a dangerous nation, because of that idealism. And we're not going to put that away. And if you, know, if you looked at Barack Obama's speeches in, on foreign policy, if you look at Mitt Romney's or Giuliani's speeches, that idealism, that desire to putting democracy promotion at the heart of American foreign policy is not going away. Hopefully we'll
3: just do it better next time.
0: We have microphones coming down to you.
3: My name is... It's on. It's on? My name is Mark David Block. I work for the State Department. I want to follow up on the last question and also two observations that David Brooks made which had to do with the need of government to think, our government to think more sociologically, and the question of who we are. I'm a hack sociologist, and also a hack anthropologist. And one of the current watchwords at the Department of State is public diplomacy, how we express ourselves internationally. And I'm curious to go a step further with those two comments in terms of thinking sociologically and how we think about ourselves. Uh, We are really just beginning to grapple with how we speak to people other than us, even to the extent of beginning to understand issues of language and meaning. When we use words, they may not be interpreted the same word in other places. So how do those two comments relate to public diplomacy?
1: I guess uh, one thing that comes to mind, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, David and I were both in Doha at a conference run by somebody. Somebody flew us to Doha. Uh, first name was Amir. <laughs> yeah, I think he had a front man. Uh, and I remember Karen Hughes gave a speech uh, there. And it was a perfectly good speech. I think it was on Rosa Parks. Uh, and afterwards, a lot of the people from the region were furious uh, because she didn't take questions. And if she had just said, I'm going to give no speech, I'm not even going to say anything, just talk at me for an hour, she would have done a lot better. That, would have been, that was the first reaction uh, I remember having. Uh, so I think that's part of public diplomacy. But I think the second part, again, is depoliticizing the conversation. At this stage, we're not going to, any talk of democracy comes loaded with all sorts of language. And so to me, I would go back to the American University of Beirut. And my original point about human capital, that's something we share with everybody in the world. Uh, Education, the desire to give people the skills they need to rise and succeed. That's something we're actually reasonably good at. We have quite a good community college system. Uh, And to me, that sort of stuff is the stuff we can non-controversially export, which will actually have some good effects on the world. If you go around the world and look at countries that have developed and become more our allies, it usually follows sixty years after a rapid increase in educational enrollments. Japan, Chile, you look at Ireland, you look at a bump in increase in educational enrollments thirty years before, suddenly you see growth thirty years later. and That's not a short-term solution, but it's probably a good thing to do in any case.
2: I would uh, make one comment about public diplomacy when when the government talks about strategic communications, what it usually means is, let's find new ways to say things to people. You know, to tell them what we think, to tell them what we think they should do. And it would be nice if we thought about strategic communications. You know, in terms of listening to people and not just talking to them. Um, you know, for right now, the best advice you could give about American strategic Communications would be just shut up. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, um, I hate to say that, but you know, I mean, President Bush still seems to think that if he just says it often enough, you know, the world's going to believe that you know we you know we, we really want that Palestinian state. Oh, okay, gosh, we we're sure you really meant it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the um, you know we need to listen to people and listen to them seriously, listen to what they're actually saying, not not a show of you know, listening. I'm here to listen. You know, but really listen to them. And and I I still don't see that. I mean, you know, Karen Hughes is a fine person, and but I, I just think this whole effort um, at, at the State Department, to call strategic strategic communications, really wasn't that because it wasn't about two way anything, as as David said. Was it that, you know. my,
0: my mother, my she passed away, but she said. Uh, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and you ought to listen twice as much to your talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not a bad idea, really. It would okay. put us out of business, both of us. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: uh, George Devendorf with Mercy Corps, a global relief and development organization. When I think years from now we look back at some of the legacies from the Iraq experience, one of them, I'm not sure how large it will appear a few years from now, but one of them will likely be uh, AFRICOM, this notion of a... Uh, joined up civil and military U.S. government representation overseas, uh, presumably uh, birthed out of some of the perceived failings of how we approach the war in Iraq, but already a model which is gaining currency in some of the other commands, not just that one slated for the African continent. Uh, the question to the two of you is, in in your estimations, what sort of implications do you foresee for that sort of a, a joined up official U.S. government face or posture overseas in our ongoing efforts to meet our own needs, but also to address some of the the uh, slipping reputational and influential issues that that really form the context of our discussion today.
1: Well, obviously, one of the big interesting differences between this and uh, in Vietnam is that the reputation of the military now is high, whereas before it was low. I had a meeting recently with somebody who was, used to run the NAACP, and he was trying in the 70s to get – Military to cooperate with education, to improve educate improve the schools. And in the 70s, people laughed at them because the military were fascists. And now people have a high regard for the military, and they they want the military involved in running the schools. And so now people want the military involved in running, I guess, uh, social agency sort of behavior. Um, I doubt the military will be thrilled with this. Uh, and and uh, but nonetheless. Uh, to me it's, it's a they have some sort of model that actually seems to work. And talk about authority structures that need um, authorities that in a country hungry for authorities they are one that still retains their reputation. But we should be worried about overburdening them I would say.
2: Um, let me just speak specifically to, to AFRICOM and, and this idea of marrying up the traditional military and civil affairs functions under in one command. Um, I was in uh, Djibouti, which is kind of AFRICOM, um, you know, in embryo. We have it – it's mm-hmm. called – CENTCOM has a joint task force for the Horn of Africa based in this little tiny country, Djibouti. The, and, you know, there are, you know, six or 800 soldiers there who go out um, – you know, digging wells and vaccinating goats and, you know, helping folks. And this, this was all, you know, meanwhile, um, there were also a bunch of special operations forces that are going out, um, you know, committing, uh, you know, <laughs> nighttime raids against al-Qaeda cells. Um, but, you know, this, this was uh, part of, a, of an idea that uh, John Abizade had when he was said comp commander. It was widely shared that, you know, we needed to um, be doing these positive things To help people and show that America was about vaccinating goats, even as we were killing uh, terrorists. And um, I have to say, I came away from that visit and I've come away from discussions about AFRICOM in general with a lot of skepticism. Um, I'm not sure that soldiers, I mean, soldiers in today's army are pretty expensive human beings. You know, they are highly trained. There was a wonderful phrase that uh, I think it was Trotsky used about using gold watches to pound nails. He was referring to something obscure in Russian in Russian history. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I worry that, um, you know, I'd love to see an expansion of the civil affairs function, you know, the, the Peace Corps kinds of things that America can do. Um, I, I worry that, you know, the advocates of, you know this sort of Africom-style, um, you know, post-conflict uh, put countries back together uh, approach are really, you know, when you press it, the the real uh, neo-imperialists. I mean, they're saying we have to run the world. The world's a mess, and you know we have a military that's good at, at knocking things down, but we need a military that's good at putting things together. Because by golly, somebody's got to run this uh, screwed-up world, and I I just don't think. I mean, one thing that I'm learning is we really have to be careful about committing the United States to projects that the American public is not prepared to support. And I don't think the country is anything like prepared to support this sort of massive reconstruction of Africa using the U.S. military and AFRICOM as a base. You know, maybe it should be, maybe someday it will be, but the idea that you should kind of sail off in that direction with that idea of, you know, post-conflict reconstruction and support uh, presence really worries me.
0: Fourth back here. uh, No, or not right up here. Sorry. Well, I'll come back to you.
5: Hi. Don Presley from Booz Allen Hamilton. I'd like to come back to a point you made earlier that, David uh, Brooks, you were saying that it would be good if government could uh, do a better job of dealing with non-government movements and non-government entities. And in effect, following up on the point that, uh, that you just made, as we think about globalization, as we think about smart power, there are really multiple elements to that. It's government, it's business, it's civil society. And in effect, business and civil society have been more proactive, more internationally, and I think smarter and the way they're dealing with some of these issues. And maybe the reputation of the U.S. is, is against government and not against America. And there may be um, representatives of America out there who are doing a very good job if we could take advantage of that and have them interact more. And I'd just like to get your uh, comments and reactions to that point of view. Thank you.
1: Well, it's certainly true that American businesses have been better abroad than American government, though I do, f- do want to say, before I get to the main point, that there is an undercurrent of, uh, in this whole conversation, which I'm sure nobody means, but somebody should fill in one little blank that hasn't uh, been filled in, which is that most of our problems uh, derive from the fact that we're being attacked by really bad people, and that the core of the problem is actually that, A, terrorists, dictators, authoritarians, uh, and that we have trouble reacting to them. Uh, and uh, some of our problems are, are matters of reacting to uh, horrible players in the world, not so much that we are the primary cause of a lot of the problems. Uh, somehow I just feel uh, compelled to say that. But one of the things that struck me about uh, our use of power as a government versus vis-a-vis as a business, when you were saying that, I was reminded of a book I read recently, and I forgot the name of the book, it's by a guy named John Robb, who was uh, served out as a military officer, uh, and then became a software, very successful software engineer. Uh, yeah, the, something, something. War made new, or something like that. John Robb, R O B B, and he said when he, when he was fighting insurgencies and in the software industry, what struck him was how closely connected the insurgents were to the software designers. Hmm. Small cells of highly mobile people who actually didn't have a structure but learned very rapidly from one another. And his view was that it's very hard for a government to react to that sort of viral learning organization. And I think American business, and many, some American businesses, not all, are closer to that sort of information processing inf- organization than we are as a government. And that may be just simply built into the system.
2: Um. I think maybe uh, you, were, you were talking as well about, about NGOs and, and the, you know, Americans around the world, not just in, in businesses, who are part of a process of change. And uh, I just want to offer a brief uh, comment about that. Um, you know, civil society and, and civil society organizations of the sort that our NGOs work with are powerful and pervasive. Uh, a good example is Iran. Civil society in Iran uh, where I spent a couple of weeks uh, last year is remarkably strong you know the, the the internet I mean talk about a place where the blogosphere really is powerful and dynamic um, it, it's it 's Iran uh, there's just an incredible number of Iranian bloggers um, you know the the discussion about the arts about cultural issues that the movies if you watch Iranian movies with subtitles they 're amazing you know we, we think of it as a sort of super regimented Muslim North Korea baloney. An Iranian said to me not long ago, our civil society is very healthy. The one thing that could really mess it up is if you try to organize and galvanize it for your own purposes, you know, really for regime change, because that is, although nobody likes to say so publicly, that is the plan. I mean, I hope nobody gets... You know, stays in prison and in Iran, but there's no question that Americans have thought very specifically about encouraging a process of regime change working with Iranian civil society. And, you know, Iranian civil society will transform Iran on its own powerfully. You know, I mean, I, I, I do believe that. And I think that if you look at the examples that are often cited by conspiracy theorists, you know, who now think they've got our, our, our playbook. From the color revolutions, if you look at, at you know at, at Georgia, if you look, uh, if you look certainly at, at Lebanon and, and, and the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, you know these were powerful indigenous movements that had deep roots. Um, you know we may have come in at the end, you know, uh, through our NGOs to provide support, but but they would have failed if that if that if that was what it was about. I do think having TV cameras in on the crucial night that people are marching on the square downtown does make a difference in terms of the Army's willingness just to shoot a lot of people. So in that sense, I think, you know, what we do in our business is important. But So, I you know, I, I think civil society is fabulous. NGOs around the world are incredibly important. But the idea that they should, which was the suggestion of your question, that they should be in some way linked with our governmental efforts to stabilize and transform the world, I, I really sound a warning bell about that. Okay.
0: Right over here, and I... We'll, t- we'll see the time. We'll be right back here.
6: Um, my name is Seamus Kraft. I'm a recent graduate from Georgetown University. Um, I'm going to try to plagiarize something I think, Mr. Brooks, you wrote, um, talking about statecraft as soulcraft, maybe a few months ago.
1: That was George Will. Well, oh, was George He George. wrote a book. <laughs> well, I, I steal that idea, but that was a book he wrote. Okay, well,
6: I'm going to steal from George Will. Um, but I think that with that, under that premise, maybe the most important foreign policy book ever written, outside of the Good Book, um, would be Plato's Republic, talking about you know what you do and what you say isn't worth a damn until your soul, and your heart, and your house, whether it's the city or the man, is in order. And uh, this year, I think, is the 10th anniversary of uh, Professor Bloom's book, talking about how um, you know the culture of this country has degraded to the point where uh, we're all so full of it and full of Mick Jagger that we can't do anything. Um, but do you guys really think that the American mind is closed and that our next generation, my friends, uh, have a soul that's uh, worth a damn?
1: Actually, I'm an expert on this subject. So I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I've will I'll written a lot about this. Uh, your soul, I know it. I know it. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, uh no, I'm, I'm actually glad to get that question because I, I do have data. Uh, I was actually friends with Bloom uh, back in Chicago, and he, uh, uh, I wrote a, the first critique of the closing of the American Mind in the school paper. <clears throat> and Alan Bloom, being a very commercial-oriented guy, secretly uh, said when he read my critique, he said, when I finished my book, I knew it was going to be big. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but now Bloom was worried about... Um, the souls of young people, what the educational system was doing to it, and and indirectly, basically, to the health of the culture of society. And one thing we know about people under 30 now, and this I think Bloom would not have predicted, is that it's a remarkably responsible group. If you want to feel good about the country, read the social indicators about people under 30. Violent crime is down by 70%, domestic violence is down by 50%, teenage pregnancy is down by a third abortion rates are consequently down by a third teenagers are having fewer sexual partners now than they did 20 years ago they're having their first sexual experience later Uh, it's one piece of good news after another the divorce rate for people under 30 is like forty percent lower than the divorce rate for people over 30 after the same number of years of marriage it's a remarkably wholesome generation now that that leaves two questions one are you guys going to have the biggest midlife crisis in world history? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the second actually is deeper. Is It is, as you ask, the nature of character. And, and personally, I think um, this improvement in responsibility is because you're also the most supervised generation in human history. No group of young people has grown up so heavily monitored at all moments of their lives. Uh, and and where the competition to succeed has been so tough. And therefore it's made... And and it was funny, I was in Egypt several years ago now, and I asked one of the professors there uh, what his his students were like, and he said, well, they're more religiously conservative than they used to be, but they're much more professional than they used to be. And that word professional shows up again and again and again. And so I think the outward appearances are all very good from a boring middle-aged point of view. Uh, The inner state... I think has been shaped deeply by this competition, professionalization of life. But as for the state of your souls, I've actually found, despite some previous writings on the subject, that it's hard to measure other people's souls. Uh, <laughs> you don't have a solo meter. Uh, and therefore, it's hard to generalize. But, but the outward behavior is extremely wholesome and um, community-oriented. Uh, just one final joke on this subject. It, I, steal, I steal this one from Steve Trachtenberg, the GW president, and it's about the community service of his students. And I love this line. He said, "I don't know where my students find lepers, but they find them and they read to them." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and I, I do think that is, on the whole, at least superficially, a very good sign.
0: You want anything? No. Uh. one last question? <laughs> <laughs> one last question, and we'll we'll we can bring a microphone over.
7: Hi, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Um, I'm George Papianos. I'm with an organization uh, called Internews Network. We do uh, media development uh, in conflict, post-conflict environments. And I'm, I'm taken by the fact that we have here today two uh, members of the American press. And in many countries that we have been talking about, independent media doesn't exist. and in, And in that regard... The ability for societies to reflect upon themselves, see where they're going, find their their uh, relative place locally and also as it relates outwardly to the rest of the world, I think is somewhat diminished. And so, I'm curious to find out from the two uh, members of uh, of this uh, discussion panel, you know, what role can we play in helping to support the development of independent media and how that can add to, uh, to our sense of, of creating a more secure environment, not only for ourselves, but in the countries where people are living in a less secure place. Thank
2: you. I'll, I'll take a first shot at that. I mean, I do a- absolutely believe that more, uh, you know, newspapers per capita and journalists per capita is a, is a measure of a healthy society. Um, you know, I, this... Um, I I do talk often to groups of journalists around the world, but especially in the Arab world, which which I know well. And, um, you know, I I say to them, I'll say to this audience, um, the best of those journalists are my heroes. And they are the people who absolutely define for me what our business is about. They risk their lives every day doing their job. If you want to see a courageous person Read a Lebanese journalist named Michael Young and what he writes in the Beirut Daily Star, you know, once or twice a week about Syria. And he just absolutely lays it on the line. They could come and kill him tomorrow. I mean, I've been to too many memorial services for Lebanese. I spoke at a, at a memorial service for Ghassan Twaini's son, who was the publisher of An Mahar, in December. Uh, was was apparently killed by the Syrians. You know, these people are are standing up, taking risks. And if there's something that, that, that we can do, and, and by by we I mean as private individuals in our business, I don't mean the U.S. government. Um, it is it is to be in fraternity and solidarity with these people, meet with them, hold them up to, you know, criticize them when they do bad journalism, when they when they follow, when they write. Anti-Semitic things, or just do bad journalism. Um, you know, learn from them when they do stuff that we that we we, we could emulate. Uh, but you know, I, I think um, you know in, in our in our business, that sense of solidarity uh, among journalists around the world, I it, think, it's, it's powerful. And you know, I, I, we I, you know, I wish we had more money in our in our business now to, to pump into this. That does worry me because it's a time when we like we could. To, make
7: a difference in what you're talking
1: about without any government intervention at all. The only thing I'd add quickly is that, I think it's important for people, American or any, journalists of any profession, or maybe of any profession, to know what great journalism looks like. Uh, to, to have exemplars, which is actually how you learn to do something. There's some quotation by some educational theorist that most moral problems are caused by a lack of an insufficient ideal. I'm misremembering that, but you've got to know what greatness looks like. And so, t- to me, looking at people who do the job in a great manner, whether they're American or anybody else, uh, would be a useful, is a continually needed and useful service. And just the one who was at my paper I've only met once in my life is John Burns, who's been in Baghdad for all these years. I mean, there's an example of someone who's, who's got not only engagement, expertise, a literary sense, but also a tremendous passion and dispassion in his writing, mixing that all together, uh, and for any journalist to see how he does what he does, wherever they're from, is to me a continual thing that needs to be done. So it, you know they won't get sucked into the the people who write the bestsellers, the Ann Coulter's and David Brookses of the world. <laughs> 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 now, anyway, so read John Burns. Bring John Burns around the world and let people look at him.
0: We've seen two exemplars this afternoon. Uh, Colleagues, I feel like I've been to the best restaurant (laughs) in town. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you.